This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance are by Brian McLaren. We Christians know how to do two things very well. First, some of us know how to have a strong Christian identity that responds negatively to other religions. The stronger our Christian commitment, the stronger our aversion or opposition to other religions. The stronger our Christian commitment, the more we emphasize our differences with other faiths, and the more we frame those differences in terms of good and evil, right and wrong, better or worse. We may be friendly to individuals of other religions, but our friendship always has a pretext. We want them to switch sides and be won over to our better way. We love them, or we say we do, in spite of their religious identity, hoping that they will see the light and abandon it to find shelter under the tent of our own. Alternatively, others of us know, uh, know how to have a more positive, accepting response to other religions. We never proselytize. We always show respect for other religions and their adherents. We always minimize differences and maximize commonalities, but we typically achieve coexistence by weakening our Christian identity. What if we pursued a Christian identity that moves us toward people of other faiths in wholehearted love, not in spite of their non-Christian identity and not in spite of our own Christian identity, but because of our identity as followers of God in the way of Jesus? This morning's scripture reading is 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 4 through 10 from the paraphrase of the message. Welcome to the living stone, the source of life. The workman took one look and threw it out. God set it in the place of honor. Present yourselves as building stones for the construction of a sanctuary vibrant with life, in which you'll serve as holy priests offering Christ-approved lives up to God. The scripture provides precedent. Look, I'm setting a stone in Zion, a cornerstone in the place of honor. Whoever trusts in this stone as a foundation will never have cause to regret it. To you who trust him, he is a stone to be proud of. But to those who refuse to trust him, the stone the workmen threw out is now the chief foundation stone. For the untrusting, it's a stone to trip over, a boulder blocking the way. They trip and fall because they refuse to listen, just as predicted. But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the day and night difference he made for you, from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. 
The Holy Gospel according to John chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Is Jesus the only way? Have you wondered that? I've wondered that. I know you've been told that. I certainly have. Well, to wrestle through that this morning, I'm going to lean heavily on my friend Brian McLaren, who's written about this in some of the most thoughtful ways that I have come across. And Brian says that this is one of the questions he is asked most frequently. Do you think Jesus is the only way? And he says often it's asked as sort of a test question to see if he gives the right answer. But this question raises another question, he says. The only way to what? Is Jesus the only way? The only way to what? If you want to learn about the eight noble truths or the fourfold path, Buddha is the way, not Jesus. If you want to learn about submission to Allah, Jesus can't help you, but Muhammad can. If you want to talk about the triumph of the proletariat over the controlling elites, or the relation of id, ego, and superego, talk to Marx or Freud. And if you want to learn how to get rich quick without work, or healthy immediately without diet or exercise, there are some prosperity preachers who make bold promises, but not Jesus. If it's the way to wealth through no money down real estate, 
or the way to marriage without risk, or the way to world domination through military conquest, Jesus is not your man, nor does he want to be. But if you are asking about the kingdom of God coming to earth, what that means and how that can happen, well, it might be worth paying attention to Jesus. Many of us try to answer the first question, is Jesus the only way, without first answering the second, only way to what? And we have the assumption, of course, that the question means, is Jesus the only way to get to heaven after you die? It's typically what we mean when we ask that question. Or maybe we could rephrase it like, is personally hearing about and believing in certain statements or concepts about Jesus Christ the only way to avoid burning forever in hell? That's usually what's going on, right? When we ask that question, there's an understanding that that's also a part of it. And it's often posed as a kind of multiple choice final exam with a lot riding on, and a lot of stakes riding on the question. Multiple choice with only two options no or yes. Get it right, and you're in. You're one of us, you're part of the club, you get your get out of hell free card. Answer wrong and watch how fast your Christian friends disappear, at least some of them. Now, even if you have a hunch that there's something wrong with this approach, right, you're still not quite sure what to do. After all, John 14, 6, which is in our text today, seems pretty clear. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, for many folks, that's cut and dried and the end of the discussion. But should it be? I don't think so. And so we're going to explore that a little this morning. Well, fortunately, this verse, John 14, 6, which is often quoted, doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes in a certain chapter in a text as part of a larger scene, a larger context. And of course, it takes work to explore some of this context and what that might mean. And for many, it's much easier to simply reconfirm the notions they already have or they already believe rather than to do this work. However, if we're going to use a text to consign the majority of the human race to eternal conscious torment, I think it might be worth our while to dig a little deeper. So we're going to do that. This conversation between Jesus and the disciples here in chapter 14, if we look back to the previous chapter, chapter 13, is happening in the setting or the context of the Passover meal that Jesus is sharing with them. In chapter 13, we read that Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, and he's sharing the meal, and then he predicts that one of them is going to betray him, and then Judas, of course, dips the bread and walks out into the night. At some point in their evening together, Peter asks, Well, Lord, where are you going? Because Jesus was noting that his time was coming. Well, Lord, where are you going? Jesus responds, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterward. Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus responds, 
The famous line, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I tell you, before the cock crows three times, or before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. I knew there was a three in there. <laughs> kind of a classic scene, but we don't always remember that that's the scene in which this verse of John 14.6 comes in. And so that's exactly how chapter 13 ends, and it leads right into our chapter. So it's the same setting. So where, from this little bit that we talked about chapter 13, does it sound like Jesus is going? He's talking about his upcoming suffering and death. He's going to the cross. And I think it's helpful to remember that because there's talk of the way and where are you going in our chapter as well. But we often just assume Jesus is talking about heaven. But it's helpful to remember that in this context of chapter 13, he's talking about his upcoming suffering and death on the cross. And he says, I'm going there. You cannot come now, but you will follow me later. And of course, we know many of the disciples did follow that same path of suffering and death due to their commitment to Jesus. So Jesus is talking about his death, and that's how our chapter begins. So it's no wonder that chapter 14 begins with these words, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am you may also be. So here we have another kind of text that we hear quoted a lot in a certain way. And we often hear it rendered, In my Father's house are many mansions. I think we even have some hymns that use that language of mansions. And it immediately makes us think of heaven with pearly gates and nice six-bedroom houses awaiting us all, if we believe, of course, that Jesus is the only way to get there. But is that what's going on here in the first part of our chapter? What does my father's house refer to in a first-century Jewish context? The temple. That would immediately make people think of the temple, not going off to heaven someday. My father's house would be known as the temple. Yet by the time this text is being written, the Gospel of John, remember this is the latest of the Gospels that we have, written sometime between 90 and 100 of the Common Era, that temple had been destroyed some 20 to 30 years earlier. Right? That thing was a pile of rubble. So it seems unlikely that Jesus is referring to the temple here. Commentator Wes Howard Brook points out that we've heard Jesus earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 4, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, say that the house of God, or the place, the true place of worship, is not a building, but a relationship. It's not a building, but a relationship. And so it seems likely, then, that my father's house is a reference now not to the temple, but to the community, the community of Jesus' followers, where worshipers gather in spirit and in truth. It's also worth noting that the word often translated as mansions or rooms is monai in the Greek, and that is a secular term for a traveler's resting spot. A traveler's resting spot. So not an ultimate destination, not a permanent destination. It's a place to go at night. 
And so rather than referring to mansions, Moni were places of comfort in the dark where one might find communal welcome and a meal. Which I think is a beautiful image, right? You're traveling in the dark and you don't know where you're going, you don't know where you're going to stay, and you find a place of welcome, you find a meal. That's what a Moni was. And so if we put these ideas together, Howard Brooks says, we find that Jesus may be telling the Johannine community, that is the community gathered around the Gospel of John, each of the Gospels were sort of written to an early church community, telling them that in the Christian family there are many places of welcome, many house churches, many varieties of acceptable forms of community. Because these followers of Jesus this community of the Gospel of John are wondering, are we okay? Do we fit? They've been rejected by many of their former Jewish friends. They've had some contention with other followers of Jesus in other communities. And so it seems far from referring to some heavenly afterlife, Jesus is comforting this community of the fourth Gospel that there's room for their own style of shared life together. And each of these communities is to be a place of respite and welcome. To be a place where they can gather and be with God's people. And when Jesus says, I will come again and take you to myself, rather than referring to a second coming where Jesus comes and removes us from our earthly context and takes us to heaven, it's likely a reference either to the resurrection or the coming of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus is also going to talk about in this same chapter, chapter 14. He's going to say, I'm going, but I'm sending you a comforter. And so I think either of those are likely. And so already we see that perhaps we're not aware of the larger context of John 14, 6, but that even the verses before that, that we've understood to mean one thing, might actually be talking about something else. And now the two verses leading up to verse 6. Jesus says, And you know the place to where I'm going. And Thomas replies, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Well, what is Thomas asking here? Or it's helpful to know the question that prompts Jesus' response, if we're going to understand the response. Well, Brian McLaren notes that if we don't understand his question, it's highly likely we'll miss the meaning. And it's clear he's not asking anything like, will people who have never heard of you go to heaven? It's clear he's not thinking about Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Zoroastrians, followers of tribalism in Africa or South America, much less modern secular atheists or skeptics. Right? That's not on Thomas's mind when he's asking this question. Yet we use this verse in exactly that context. He and his fellow disciples are thinking about themselves. Jesus, you're leaving. Where are you going? What are we going to do? And so McLaren says, what if we read Jesus' answer then, not as an explanation or answer, certainly not an answer to a question about the eternal destiny of people uh, who have never heard of or believe in Jesus, but as a repetition and a reinforcement of what Jesus has already said, a reassurance, a reassurance. He's just said, don't be troubled, trust God, trust me. And now he repeats that reassurance with this famous verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In this light, Jesus seems to be saying, listen, you don't need to understand all this. You simply need to trust me. You just need to trust me. Don't look for a way apart from me. Don't look for a route or destination, some concept or technique or system of thought that's separate from me. I'm not trying to give you information or instructions. No, just trust me, everything you need. It's in me. I'll bring you to my father's house, whether we want to translate that as meaning heaven after death, or I think more likely the community of believers now or the kingdom of God on earth. The way, the truth, the life, these are not things separate from me. I am these things, so you'll find them in me. And if we were to dig into the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, we would also see the Torah written in various places, referenced as the way. The Torah meaning the five, first five books of Moses or simply the law. The Torah was often referenced as the way. Those are the way God's people were to live and to walk in this world. It's referenced as the truth. The true words of God. It's referenced as the life, the kind of life God wants his people to live. So in another way, you can see Jesus using an analogy similar to them. All that Moses gave you, as much as that was the way to live, so much so you can also find that in me. But what if no one comes to the Father except through me, right? That still feels a little sticky, doesn't it? But clearly taken in this context, these words are not intended as an insult to followers of Muhammad, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, Enlightenment rationalism, or anybody else. Right? Rather, the no one refers to Jesus' own disciples who seem to want some information. Right? They want specifics. Jesus, where are you going exactly and how do we get there? Because he's told them he's leaving. And so here... All that Jesus is saying, it seems to me, is a restatement of reassurance. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. It's a far cry, I think, from asking about the eternal destiny of people from other religions or periods in history who had no access to belief in Jesus. And it seems to me that maybe it doesn't even make sense to use it that way. So does this text point to the exclusivity of Jesus? To Jesus being the only way to heaven? I don't think it does. I could be wrong. Further, I don't think the main thrust of Jesus' life and ministry was to proclaim a way out of hell for some after death. His message, in large part, was not about going to heaven after history, but about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth in history. And his goal, which it seems he made clear in all he said and do, was not to constrict, but rather to expand the dimensions of who could be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus is always widening the welcome, not closing it down. And further, McLaren writes, the ridiculousness of pitting Jesus as a rival against other prophets or gods or saviors becomes evident when we try to picture Jesus himself doing that. He says, imagine a group of Christians bringing Muhammad to Jesus and then Jesus questioning Muhammad. So picture this. 
And when Muhammad's answers don't pass his orthodoxy tests, imagine Jesus washing his hands and turning Muhammad over to the Christians to execute him. Wait, that's not Jesus. That sounds more like Pontius Pilate. Or imagine Jesus dragging the Buddha before a crowd of Christians and commanding them to stone him as a false prophet. Oh, wait a second. That's not Jesus commanding the Buddha to be stoned. That's Jesus standing with the Buddha, defending him from those who would stone him. Or again, imagine Jesus bringing Muhammad, the Buddha, Moses, and a panel of leading atheists to a top of a mountain where they can see the whole earth spreading out beneath them in all directions. And now imagine Jesus saying, I'll let you share in the ownership of all this if only you'll bow down and worship me. Wait a minute, that's not Jesus? That sounds like... You get the point. Is Jesus the only way? Well, it depends on where we're trying to go. If we want to abandon the earth as a lost cause and evacuate upward to heaven as soon as possible, McLaren writes, I suspect we're going in a different direction than Jesus. His movement has been downward. And as the Father sent him, so he sends us. The Apostle Paul said it well. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Jesus' movement is downward. Heaven to earth, earth to humanity, humanity to servanthood, servanthood to suffering and death. He doesn't teach us to pray, may we go to heaven where your will is done perfectly, but rather may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's where we want to go, to get earthy and to manifest the kingdom of God on earth, then we can't go wrong with following Jesus. So rather than argue about who is more right, or who is in and who is out, may we shift our direction so that we seek to move down with him in the direction of incarnation, not abandonment, in the direction of involvement and identification, being with people, not elitism and not escape. And may we go where he went for the reasons he went, in service and in love to the lowest and the least. Amen. And namaste.
wild world we're all trying to find our place in it. It's a wild world no one seems to understand it. It's a wild world but there ain't no way I'm gonna quit it. Love is all I got to give away. Folks ain't got a dollar to their name. Others got their own jet planes. We all got the same blood through our way Whether or not you pray Black or white, straight or gay You still deserve the love of a neighbor It's a wild world We're all trying to find our place in it It's a wild world No one seems to understand it It's a wild world
invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Thank you.